I, I started working at overcoming my learning disabilities when I was 18, right to a week before my 18th birthday. And I had the opportunity to meet a gentleman named Paul Bragg, who one night in an hour of presentation inspired me to help me believe that I could overcome my learning problems because I had learning ch challenges as a child. And I went on a pursuit to try to overcome those learning problems and I learned how to read at 18. And so you couldn't read before the age of 18? Well, I could get words down, but mm. formally reading a, a book from cover to cover, I never did. I made it through school. I dropped out of school when I was about 14, but I made it through school up until then by asking smart kids questions, which is part of what I do today, yeah, ask questions. Yeah. But um, at age 18, uh, I moved from Hawaii, where I was living, to back to see my parents, because I was living as a surfer in North Shore of Oahu. And I moved back to Texas, and I took a GED, which is a high school equivalency test, and I guessed and I passed. And then I tried to go to college after that, and I failed. And so I had to go and learn how to overcome my learning problems. And with the help of my mom, we started studying 30 words a day out of a dictionary. And I had to spell them, pronounce them, put meaning to the sentence with them, and um, grow my vocabulary enough to be able to understand some of the things in school. And slowly but surely, with 30 words a day, it, it, you do, after a while, you do pretty well. And I eventually passed school and I started to excel. And then I had this absolute thirst to get caught up with everybody else around me because they were smart kids and I was the, I always had to wear a dunce cap when I was a kid. And so I um, was very, very adamant about trying to overcome that and catch up with people and I just fell in love with learning. One of the most universal principles that I've found in every discipline that I've studied, which is 300 now, uh, is the law of the one to many. The law of the one and the many. The law of the okay. one and the many. The law of the one and many says, as you approximate the one, you have forces to disperse it into the many. And as you approximate the many, you have forces to disperse it into the one. So for instance, uh, radiation comes from a point source and radiates out to an infinite number of radii. So one to many. Mm -hmm but gravitation goes from the infinite many into one. So radiation and gravitation, which are inversions of each other, one is light and one is going to dark, um, underlie much of this universe, light and dark, you might say. So that's a law of the one of many. But that has application in sociology, for instance. When you're, uh, when you're amongst, a, you're, you're isolated from a group, you wanna find a group to fit in. Mm. But once you find the group and fit into it, you wanna stand out. Mm -hmm. So as you move towards one, you also want to diversify into many, find your own uniqueness. Um, you have monarchies, democracies. When you're dating many people, you're trying to find that special one. Once when you, you get found the one, you're bored. You're bored, you wonder what the hell <laughs> yeah, the others are doing, yeah. right. So this law of the one to many, it's also called the law of similars and differences. It's a law of the peace and war, or cooperation and competition, or build and destroy. It's a conservation law, it's a symmetry law that that applies in every field so far I've studied. And so that's a very, I define a universal law as something that is universally applicable and, and macro, micro scales in between uh, and also in all the different disciplines, which are just views of the universe, you might say. So that would be one. People that make money without meaning usually end up in debauchery. I don't promote it. I think that you need to find something that is deeply meaningful to you, 
Because you know when you're doing this show, for instance, or when you're doing service for people and you actually know you're making a difference and people come up and say, thank you, you've made a trajectory difference. Nothing to do with money. It, well, it, it, you deserve to get paid for it. This is not like it doesn't have anything to do with money. You want a fair exchange. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a deep meaning there and it means something you've yeah. made that difference. Yes. I, I had a dinner and lunch with a gentleman who made $75 million a year. That's a good income. That's one of the best yeah. incomes. Yeah. Okay. Now, this gentleman had a series of media um, tabloids that he owned, which sell a lot. They're some of the biggest mm -hmm. sellers, the tabloids. And this gentleman uh, drank 18 drinks during lunch. Wow, lunch. Yeah, because <laughs> he had no meaning in his work. It was purely a money-making system that had no meaning in his life. He didn't feel like he made any difference. But I also know people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett that have fortunes, but they do something meaningful on a daily basis that they love doing. You don't see debauchery there. You don't see uh, um, a living your life to escape. They see it leaving life to fulfill something meaningful. So I'm a firm believer in finding something that serves people's needs, but not at the expense of yours, and not trying to do something that's just for what you want, narcissistically, that doesn't serve people's needs. You have to find an equity between what you would love to do and what people would love to get. When you find that, you found your niche, you found meaning, and you found something you can't wait to get up in the morning and do. I started it in 1984, but I developed a method um, that it dissolves grief. I'll use this analogy, and this will help people understand it. When Saddam Hussein passed away in America, because people had a skewed uh, resentment to some of the behavior, according to our propaganda, people were celebrating in the streets his death. There was not mourning. But in Iraq, for those that were more infatuated with him and appreciative of him that way, they um, were grieving. So I've observed that we have two forms of grief. Grief comes from the withdrawal and the loss from that which we attach to, attract to, or infatuate with. So the, in other words, the, the loss of that which we seek causes grief, or the gain of that which we try to avoid. So in the amygdala, which is a subcortical brain area, uh, it's the animal behavior is if predator comes towards us or prey gets away from us, we have grief. If prey comes towards us and we get to eat, and predator goes away from us, we have relief. So it's actually a biological response to things we seek or avoid. So if we are neutral and have no seek or avoid, there's no grief or relief. So what I do is I show people how to take whatever they think they've just lost, identify what they've lost, and in every case since 1984, they only have a loss of the things that they were attracted to. They never say, well, I miss their yelling. I missed their screaming. Well, yeah. They only missed the things that they were infatuated with. So we itemize every single thing that they think they miss, that they're grieving the loss of. We then show them who in, in their life is now manifesting that. We think we've lost something, but that's because we're attached to the form. Once we identify the new forms that emerge, because new people take on those yeah. roles. Yes, Once we see the new form of it and quantify it and where it's quantity that's equal, quantity and quality is equal. Then we go and we take the drawback side of the first thing that we were infatuated with, that we were attracted to, and show them the unconscious downsides of that behavior. Because every behavior has two sides, but you're only conscious of one at a time usually. So when I show them the downsides and I level that and bring the downsides equal to the upsides without making anything up, just observing, and then the benefits of the new form that's now transformed into, and level those, it's impossible for them to have grief. And it's dissolved. And I've been doing that for since 84. People think they've got all these different strategies, but there's only two forms, to the brain. 
The perception of loss is that which you seek, and the perception of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. Think of a stress. Pick any stress. Not being, uh, not looking good. I mean, for me, go back to my values. Um, it would be not looking your best. Yes. Not looking okay. So if you look in the mirror and it's not, a, 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 it's a bad hair day or whatever, and it's not, <laughs> you're not looking your best. You feel you're having a loss of that which you seek. Yeah. Or a gain of that which you don't want. Yes. Pick another stress. Financial stress. Financial stress. Okay. Yes. Uh, a huge tax bill. Okay. So anytime you have, now, can you see you don't want bills coming to you? I definitely you're trying to avoid that. So yes. anytime something comes onto you, you're trying to avoid stress. Or if some client that was paying you all of a sudden disappears, you have a loss of that which you seek. Every stress, distress that a human being is going to face, distress, not you stress, but distress, comes from the perception of loss of that which you seek and a gain of that which you're trying to avoid. Every distress known. I think people are going to have to rewind that and listen to that over and over again because that's you know the biggest yeah, thing. Because out it, there. It's, a, it's a normal response to predator and prey in our brain, except now the predator is anything that challenges our values and a prey is anything that supports our values. We just have more diversified values than just an animal out in the wild, seeking an animal and trying to avoid an animal. We have now more predator things in our life and more prey things in life because anything we desire is a prey. Anything we're desiring to avoid is a predator. And as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of it's human suffering. Yeah. That's where passion is. That's why passion is polarizing the mind and trying to avoid half and try to get the other half. And many people are trying to get rid of half their life to love themselves, and it won't ever happen. You gotta love all sides of yourself, both sides of yourself. Oh. Can't love yourself if Amazing. you're trying to get rid of half of yourself. Can't love life if you're trying to get rid of half of life. I felt extremely unfulfilled, and I felt like there was something else in me. But I couldn't figure that out. I couldn't figure, I, I spent, I, I came out of my corporate life for, for a couple of years, tried to figure it out, and it wasn't actually funny enough until I did the breakthrough that I, I had that sort of aha moment. How do you get people to awaken? Every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values that they live their life by, moment by moment. And even though these set of values are evolving and changing, at that moment, every perception, decision, and action is based on it. That's why I was saying it filters it, that pulvinar nuclei filters mm. it. So if you set a goal that is aligned with what you value most, what's highest in value, that is the most intrinsic value that you spontaneously will act upon. You are reliable, you're disciplined, and you're focused there. But if you try to set a goal that's on lower values, it becomes more extrinsic, and you need incentives to keep you staying focused on it. Motivation is You need cool. motivation. Yes. Yeah. Instead of inspiration yeah. from within, it's external motivation. And if you need motivation to do what you say is important, what you say is important isn't important. I don't require motivation to do what I love doing. I, I, I research, write, travel, teach. I, I, I completely don't need that. understand that. I mean, people say to me, um, how do you have the time to go to the gym? Yeah. And I'm, the answer is simple. It's a non-negotiable for me. I make time. It's high on your values. It's high on my yeah. When it's high on your values, I, I delegate workouts to other specialists. <laughs> I do a little bit. I work out my mouth. mouth. I was on Very the front, good at that. front cover of Blab magazine, not Ab magazine. But, but um, whatever is highest on your value, you truly do have a spontaneous inspiration to take action on. Everyone has that. But what happens is people often compare themselves to people on the mm. outside. They look up to people they think is more intelligent, more successful, more wealth, more stable relationship, more socially influential, more physically fit, more spiritually aware. And the second they compare themselves to others, instead of comparing their daily actions to their own highest value, 
they automatically inject and inculcate other people's values into life and cloud the clarity of their own calling. And the highest value is the purpose. That's the calling. And, and so I have a value determination process, you know, as my website. Yes. And it's a 13 questionnaire process that helps you look at your life objectively. Relationships can be the hardest thing in the world. Do you think you need to meet somebody with your values for a relationship to you, work? You won't. If, if you have, if the way the beauty is, the universe works most sufficiently at the border of order and chaos, or the border of support and challenge. So if you went out looking for somebody that had the same values to you, you'd be over-supported and you'd be bored. And so if you went out with somebody that was complete opposite values, you'd end you up having help. burnout. Boredom, burnout. Imagine if a guy comes up to you and he gets on his knees, I just want to do everything you want me to do. Tell me when to do it, and I just want to be like, that. tell me how to be and everything else. You go, get a life. Yeah, exactly. Stand up. Yeah, ex yeah. Be Challenge a man. Me. Be a man. <laughs> you know, you're wuss. But if he goes in there and says, look, baby, you tell me, I'm do telling you what to do. You do what I tell you. You'd also get burned out. You want somebody that is, is able to banter with you, that is, if you go up, they, they come, calm you down. If you go down, they lift you up, and they keep you in center and authentic. And that occurs when you have a balance of support and challenge. The ancient Greeks said when you have more similarities than differences, you have infatuation. And when you see more differences than similarities, you have resentment. But if you have a blend of similarities and differences, support and challenge, you have love. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.